So over the course of this retreat so far, we've mentioned that the overall arc of the practice is the movement within the Four Noble Truths is from clinging to release. In other words, from dukkha, unsatisfactoriness, stress, distress, suffering, to happiness, ease, peace and freedom. So I just wanted to check. Now we're almost at day six of this retreat. How's it going? Now, it's possible that you might not have been abiding consistently in calm and clarity for the entire time. But we've been hearing in the group meetings and the individual meetings that there are at least some moments, some degrees of more calm, more quiet, more ease, more peace, more clarity, more understanding. And those moments are interspersed with a few moments that are not those things. <laughs> and sometimes terms like roller coaster come up. <laughs> and I know in my own practice, I, uh, when I was in the US, there was a phase on retreat where I felt like this is not so much a roller coaster as being like strapped to one of those bucking broncos, you know, those mechanical bulls that they have in bars, and you're just like holding on for dear life, and this thing is kind of trying to throw you off. So it's not always a smooth ride. And I just wanted to name that because for many of you here, this is your first retreat. And we've been trying to reassure you that all this is normal. And we've been trying to emphasize that just because a meditation experience is unpleasant, that doesn't mean that it's wrong or bad. But this understanding is deeply counterintuitive. And even very experienced meditators can tend to equate pleasant experiences with good meditation and unpleasant experiences with bad meditation. And again, this was true for me early on. I wasted huge amounts of time and energy struggling to get the unpleasant experiences to go away and the pleasant experiences to stay. And even though I might have known intellectually that this wasn't the right approach, I still would feel mystified, even mortified, every time those fleeting moments of ease and calm and peace dissolved into misery which they seem to do pretty often. So I took it all very personally. And I would assume that I must have done something wrong whenever those states disappeared. So for me, it was a huge relief when one teacher, I think it was Michelle MacDonald, talked about what she described as cycles of purity and purification. And I've mentioned this in some of the group meetings. It's the understanding that there's a natural rhythm to the way our practice unfolds. And there's a causal relationship between these different phases. So the so-called purification phase is when we're navigating all of those various challenging emotions and moods and mind states that have come up. And as we learn how to deal with those skillfully, with kind curiosity, with openness, with equanimity, those afflictive states eventually release. 
And then we find ourselves in the so-called purity stage. And the mind becomes very calm and clear and open and equanimous. Sometimes we might even experience a few moments <coughs> of multiple sneezing or bliss. <laughs> so sometimes we might experience a few moments of bliss. And then the natural tendency is to think, yes, at last, now I have finally got it. This is great. And now I can cruise for the entire rest of the retreat. (laughs) Sounds like some of you recognize that one too. So you probably know from your own experience what happens next. Perhaps a couple of hours later, or in the very next sitting, everything falls apart. And we find ourselves caught in another multiple hindrance attack. Sometimes with seemingly even more intensity than the previous one. So again, we're back in that purification cycle. And we stay there until we can develop enough skill to let those states dissolve. And then the next purity cycle emerges and so on. So it's because of the calm and clarity in the mind that the next level of stuff can come bubbling up into consciousness. And as we learn to metaphorically digest that, the mind can settle into more deep ease, calm and peace, which in turn allows the next set of afflictive states to come up, and so on. So the more we can understand that these are natural cycles and not to try and hold on as the pendulum swings from one to the other, the less we suffer. Do we try instead to simply keep making space, knowing right now it's like this. And now it's like this. And now it's like this. And eventually those pendulum swings, those cycles get a little less dramatic. And even though you might understand that, you might tell yourself, okay, fine, this is just the practice naturally unfolding. What often gets in the way Uh, some very deeply conditioned habits of the mind, various kinds of thought patterns that are very painful, but also very familiar. So familiar that they seem real and true and just who I am. So tonight I wanted to talk a little bit more about how to work with difficult, afflictive thought patterns and to focus on one specific and pretty common type of afflictive thought pattern, one that often shows up quite intensely on retreat, and that's the afflictive mental pattern known as comparing mind. So comparing mind is that very common tendency to assess oneself in relation to other people as being either better than, worse than, or equal to them. And this is known in the Buddha's teachings as mana. And the symptoms include being constantly aware of what other people are doing, and then hyper-aware of what we ourselves are doing by comparison. And often that awareness is accompanied by an inner monologue about how well or badly we're doing relative to those other people or sometimes to how we ourselves were doing on previous retreats. 
And this doesn't just show up on retreat. It shows up pretty much wherever there are other people. So, (laughs) yeah, in our families, in our workplaces, in our communities, our neighborhoods, our sanghas. So, sounds like you recognize it, at least occasionally. And so you might also have a sense of how painful it can be. So later on I'll be bringing in the antidotes to these patterns, bringing together wisdom and compassion, those two wings to awakening that I mentioned last night. So that's a brief overview of where we're going with this tonight. So coming back to comparing mind, I mentioned that this particular pattern was recognized all the way back at the time of the Buddha. So it has pretty deep historical roots. It's not just a modern phenomenon. And this Pali term that's usually translated as comparing mind as mana, often also translated as conceit. So we might have read this in Dharma books, the term conceit. But in English, the term conceit usually refers to thinking of ourselves as superior to others. But in the Buddha's understanding, thinking of ourselves as inferior is equally a form of conceit, as is thinking ourselves as equal. So this is a little harder to wrap our minds around. We might understand that conceit in terms of superiority is a bad thing, but equal to, what's the problem with that? And inferior to, how can that be conceit? But those are all seen as conceit because they're rooted in, as, in, sorry, as problematic because they're rooted in a misunderstanding that every person has their own path, their own unique conditioning. So it's pretty pointless to compare oneself to someone else because if you had their causes and conditions, you would be them, you wouldn't be you. And their unique causes and conditions are flowering as them. And any kind of taking ourself to be a fixed, permanent, static identity is also a form of misperception. It goes against the understanding of anatta or not-self. So I want to talk a little bit more about the conceit of thinking ourselves inferior because I don't know what's going on in our societies but it seems to be almost an epidemic that people have often this deeply held belief of themselves as being inferior of not having enough of not being good enough of being inadequate unlovable fundamentally flawed And that basic misperception stops us from seeing clearly. It keeps us locked into a small sense of me, permanently isolated and disconnected from the other human beings around us. And again, in my own practice, this was a pattern that I struggled with for many years. And back then, I believed it was unique to me that it was due to my specific family and social conditioning and my personal failings. 
And I also believed that by contrast, everybody else had it all together. Everybody else was fundamentally well-balanced and living blissfully free of even the slightest trace of neurosis. And it was really only when I came into this teaching world that I started to hear so many other people expressing similar struggles. And I started to get a sense of just how common this inferiority view is. So to give a real-life example, uh, two or three years ago now, I taught a series of classes that were exploring afflictive mental states such as fear and ways to transform them. And because the theme was fear, I was trying to find a relatively gentle way into the first class. So I invited the people to write two lists. One, a list of anxieties that they commonly experienced in daily life, and then two, a list of anxieties that commonly came up for them in their Dharma practice. And then I collected all the lists that they wrote and I typed them up into a document to share anonymously with the whole group. And if you'd asked me beforehand to guess the kinds of anxieties that they would have come up with, I probably would have had a pretty good idea. But still, when I saw the actual lists and I typed them up, it was poignant and actually painful because the same themes kept appearing over and over and over. And just that single phrase, not good enough, that appeared multiple times. And then there were also all kinds of variations of that phrase. For example, not having enough money, not being smart enough, not working fast enough, not being worthy enough. And then the second major theme was around rejection, abandonment, and not belonging. So, for example, fear of failure, fear that people won't like me for who I am, fear of being alone, fear of being found out as a fraud, I don't know if any of those uh, you might recognize in yourself, but I wanted to share just a few examples because what struck me was that this was a group, the group I was teaching was a group of self-selected Dharma study people who were interested in understanding themselves and who were oriented to practicing wisdom and compassion. And still, this sense of unworthiness and this fear of rejection was so pervasive. And almost everyone felt that they were the only ones who were experiencing this. So I share that just to normalize how common this inferiority conceit is. So comparing mind comes up in relation to other people. And it can also show up in the context of our own lives by comparing, for example, how we used to be in the past or with how we are now or anticipating how we're going to be in the future. And again, all of those are variations of delusion because they carry that sense of a fixed identity that continues from the past to the future. And if we look more closely at that, we discover that identity is usually someone who needs to improve 
who needs to get better, who needs to make progress, who needs to succeed. So we see that drive over the course of our lives, but even in the course of one sitting. I don't know if you've had this experience of coming into the hall and sitting down and just telling yourself, right, this is the one where I finally get it. Yep, the mind is going to settle, and deep samadhi is going to develop. Those awakening factors they mentioned are going to come into play, and is it happening yet? Am I calm? How's my concentration? Where's that bliss and rapture I've read about? Okay, not doing it right again. And look at that guy over there. He looks pretty serene. I bet he's getting it. Why not me? If it's good enough for him, what's going on? So again, comparing mind at work. And just to acknowledge, there is a skillful aspect to knowing what's happening in our practice. We do want to be able to recognize when beneficial mental states are present and when they're absent. But there's a big difference between simple discernment and getting caught in judging and comparing. So to to be clear about the difference, discernment is simply seeing what's happening and taking appropriate steps to come back to balance. Whereas judgment is rooted in comparing mind and it's centered around a sense of me and my practice and it's that self-referencing energy that pulls us off balance. And that energy can be pretty strong. So generally we need both of these two wings of awakening, the wisdom and compassion working together. So to begin with the wisdom wing, It's this that helps us to see through our distorted perceptions. And it does this through insight, clearly seeing the truth of how things are, the truth that everything is constantly changing. Nothing can give us lasting satisfaction, and there's no fixed permanent identity to call myself at the center of it all. So some of you may recognize these are the three universal characteristics of impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and not-self. Or to use slightly different language, these are pointing to the truth that everything we experience is impermanent, imperfect, and impersonal. So everything is constantly changing. It's impermanent. None of us None of it can give us lasting satisfaction. It's imperfect. And none of it is our fault, and it's not under our control. It's impersonal. So the more deeply we see into these characteristics, the more they support ease and happiness, peace and freedom. And the more we resist the truth of these and don't see them clearly, the more we suffer. So we can use these characteristics as allies to help us weaken the deeply conditioned afflictive patterns, like comparing mind. So for example, instead of struggling or avoiding to get rid of comparing mind, one option is just to write it out, to see its impermanence. It arises, 
It stays for a while. It passes away. We don't have to get entangled in trying to get rid of it. We can just remind ourselves, yep, this is painful, and this too shall pass. Because of the truth that changed, at some point it will disappear of its own accord. And that can help release the grip of trying to control the state. Often, though, there's the tendencies to collapse into that state and make it feel more solid, more permanent, by the way we talk about it in our inner dialogue. So I'm talking more broadly now about afflictive states, not just comparing mine. So earlier in the retreat, I mentioned this in relation to the past factor of wise speech and how our commitment to uh, ethical commitment to right speech can include our inner dialogue. And again, in my own practice, when I started really listening to how I was speaking to myself, it was pretty shocking. And so I made a commitment to apply the same standards of kindness and honesty to my internal speech as what I was trying to offer to others. And when I did look more carefully at that inner speech, I started to recognize at that time how often it was distorting reality and how often I was using what psychologists call eternalizing statements. And these are statements, things like, I'm always anxious. I never experience any calm. I'm constantly getting it wrong. So words such as always and never are symptoms of what's known as absolutist thinking. And this is an unhealthy style of thinking that psychologists have recognized as linked often to anxiety and depression. And in Buddhist terms, this thinking style is unhealthy because it reinforces the delusion of permanence. So if you do notice these words coming up in the mind, you might play, you might experiment with changing that inner language to see if you can find something that's more accurate, more factually true. So instead of telling ourselves, I'm always anxious, or I'm just an anxious person, you might say to yourself, I have a tendency to feel anxious in certain circumstances. Or instead of saying, I never get it right, you might say, I sometimes feel that my practice isn't going as well as it could. So do you hear the difference? In one, there's a kind of a solid, fixed, permanent <coughs> statement. And in the other, there's a little bit more room for, there's a bit more wiggle room. And even just that small acknowledgement that these difficult patterns are not as continuous and fixed as we'd like to believe, that can help to release their grip. So sometimes when I try to suggest this to people, for example around anxiety, they try to convince me that I'm wrong and that actually their painful patterns have always been there. They're constantly <laughs> present now, and they definitely will be into the future. And so one tool I sometimes use just to challenge this a little is to ask the person to notice on a scale of 0 to 10 if that 
state is going up and down or not. So again, working with anxiety. If 10 is a full-blown panic attack and zero is completely calm, when I ask people just to track through the day, pretty much usually they see that the degree of anxiety is constantly changing. And at times it's actually much lower than they might, than they might notice. But again, because of the mind's inherent negativity bias, the tendency is not to register those moments of reduced anxiety and to overvalue the times of more anxiety. So we can use that scale of 0 to 10 for any afflictive state, anxiety or anger or grief or so on. And when we do recognize that it's in the lower end of the terrain, to really let that in, to notice how does it feel when there's a relative degree of ease or calm. So we're rewiring or resetting the nervous system to allow the non-anxiety to become more the default. So seeing impermanence in these states that we tend to try to make permanent. And then the second of the three characteristics is the unsatisfactoriness, the truth of imperfection. And this also can be a powerful ally to help us reduce the power of these thought patterns. But accepting the truth of unsatisfactoriness goes against some pretty deep individual conditioning and collective conditioning too. Because most of us have been taught that we have to make everything better or even perfect. And as I mentioned earlier, most of us put a huge amount of time and energy in trying to control our external circumstances in trying to get all the conditions around us, and even the people around us, to be exactly the way we want them to be. And there's an often deeply unconscious assumption that if I can just get X, Y, or Z, then everything will be okay, and then I'll be happy. But in spite of all of that effort, not many of us can say that we've experienced that lasting happiness that that strategy seems to promise. Of course, there are moments of happiness, sometimes quite a few, sometimes quite intense. But overall, because of impermanence, conditions are unstable. Sorry, are unstable, and they don't, they're incapable of giving us lasting satisfaction. So releasing that drive towards perfectionism, aligning with the truth of unsatisfactoriness, that doesn't mean just giving up completely because, well, it's all dukkha anyway. That would be apathy rather than true acceptance. So we're developing a more balanced relationship to these afflictive mind states. And as our practice matures, we can see them non-judgmentally. And we can discern what we might be able to change and to accept the ones we can't. And we want to pay attention to any expectation that they shouldn't be happening. They're wrong and bad and a problem to be got rid of. And instead, orient to the understanding that we are vulnerable human beings with vulnerable human bodies, human hearts, human minds. 
And we are susceptible to greed, to hatred, to delusion at times. It's normal and natural. And as far as I know, there isn't a human being alive who is completely, utterly immune from them. And even again, if we understand that in theory, most of us have the tendency to take our afflictive states very personally. As I said earlier, to see them as our own unique shortcomings. And so we can orient now to the third of the three universal characteristics, which is not-self. That understanding that everything we experience is an impersonal process, and it's not happening to a fixed, solid, permanent self who dwells at the center of the universe, even though it often feels that way. And this one is not so easy to understand intellectually. So I'll just touch into what happens when we relate to our afflictive mind states without the understanding of not-self. So as a general rule, the more painful the thought patterns are, the more deeply rooted they are, the more likely we are to take them personally, to make them me, mine, who I am, and have them define us. And again, we can see this in the way we talk to ourselves. There's often that tendency to take ownership of these states. And we unconsciously reinforce them by turning them into an identity. So we tell ourselves, I'm an addictive type, or I'm a victim of workplace bullying, or I'm a highly realized meditator. And those I am statements... They might have some partial truth, but when they're expressed as statements that way, they can become prisons that keep us stuck in relating to the world in just one way. So again, we want to be on the lookout for these I am statements, this kind of self-reinforcing language, and again, see if we can play with it. So rather than I'm I'm an addictive type, Under certain conditions, I have a tendency to act a little compulsively. Or instead of, I'm a victim of workplace bullying, might eventually become, in a highly toxic work environment, I found it hard to stand up for myself. Or, I'm a highly realized meditator, might become, right now, in this meditation (coughs) session, the practice feels to be going well. So we're not negating the understanding there is a person who at times experiences anger or fear or success. But we're looking at the tendency to collapse our whole identity into it and to find more nuanced language, language that is closer to the truth of impermanence and unsatisfactoriness and not-self. So, so far, I've mostly been exploring the wisdom wing of the practice using those three characteristics. So, I'd like to come back briefly now to the connection between wisdom and compassion through the understanding of the four Brahmagahara practices that I mentioned last night in the overview of kindness and compassion and joy and equanimity. 
And I mentioned that together these are referred to as the sublime abidings or the heavenly realms or the boundless states. And that last phrase, boundless states, comes from a translation of the Pali word apamana. And apamana is also used to refer to these Brahmaviharas. And the mana part of apamana is the same mana that is translated as conceit. So the opposite of mana is apamana, boundless or measureless. So the four Brahma Vihara practices are very specifically an antidote to mana, to conceit. Because when these qualities of the Brahma Viharas are developed to their utmost, they transcend all forms of measuring. They become completely without limits, completely unconditional. So all four Brahma Vihara qualities are powerful antidotes to comparing mind but I'd like to focus specifically on compassion now because mana is so painful and as we heard last night compassion is the antidote to all forms of suffering and yet for many of us compassion and particularly self-compassion can be very challenging just the idea of it can bring up difficult reactions So we need to be able to move beyond our habitual conditioning to start to see the patterns that are getting in the way of this orientation towards self-compassion. And often we need to have a great deal of patience for ourselves as we start to move into what for many of us is quite unfamiliar terrain. So just to normalize how challenging it can be, a few years ago I read a short paper by a psychologist who works in the field of self-compassion. His name is Paul Gilbert. And he wrote about the challenges that many people face when they're trying to develop warmth and kindness towards themselves. And I wanted to share it with you because it gives a sense of just how difficult it can be. So he says, commonly, for high shame and self-critical people, particularly those from harsh backgrounds, the beginning of the experience of warmth and kindness can ignite considerable sadness and even grief. Self-kindness can be viewed with suspicion as being soft, self-indulgent or not deserved. And this usually indicates a fear of developing self-compassion. Exploration might reveal that the person is afraid that if they give up self-criticism, they will become lazy, unpleasant, or unlovable. And some people think that they will be punished for self-compassion by paying for it later or having it taken away. So to begin with, the work of cultivating self-compassion might include learning how to relate very patiently to some of that deep conditioning. And sometimes when I work with students who are exploring their resistance to practicing self-compassion, 
one of the things they tell me is that they find it difficult to find phrases for self-compassion that feel true and authentic. And so sometimes we'll play around together just to see if we can find some phrases that make sense for them. And I've shared as an example, in one case, the person was very resistant even to the idea of self-compassion. So the phrases that we came up with in the end sounded something like this. May I be willing at some point in the future to have the intention to eventually move in the direction of beginning to cultivate some degree of compassion for myself. (laughs) So we can laugh, but the person wrote that down, and every morning when they woke up, they said those phrases three times. And even though it was all the way over here at arm's length, slowly, slowly, it started to percolate. So we can be creative with these Brahma-Vihara practices. We can be creative with the phrases we use or don't use. We don't even have to use phrases. Again, things like simply putting a hand on our heart or taking a moment to breathe in and breathe out. Anything that helps to soothe the nervous system. So there's a lot more that we could say about all this. But just to say that when people have reservations about self-compassion making them self-indulgent or self-centered, when self-compassion is supported by wisdom, it is a powerful gift to the world. And even though in the context of a silent retreat like this, it might seem like we're just practicing for our own benefit, The more we do this for ourselves, the more possible it becomes to offer compassion to others, people who are suffering in our families, our communities, and the world. And so as the practice deepens and as the wisdom strengthens, it shifts from being self-centered to other-centered and ultimately to not-centered because there's no distinction between self and other. And as many of you know, later on in the Buddhist tradition, this fusion of wisdom and compassion became expressed in the development of the Bodhisattva ideal. So the Bodhisattva is someone who's taken a vow to postpone their own freedom so that they can help others find their way out of suffering too. And whether or not this is an ideal that resonates for us personally at this point, we might still connect with that underlying understanding that all of the effort that we're making here is of benefit not only to we ourselves, but everyone in our lives. So in the spirit of helping us to connect with that understanding, I'd like to close with a few lines from Shantideva's Avatara which is a guide to the Bodhisattva's way of life. And apparently it's a text that His Holiness the Dalai Lama reads every day. And it's a whole book, so I'm just going to read you a few lines that convey this fusion of wisdom and compassion very powerfully. So it says, May I be a protector 
for those without protection, a leader for those who journey, and a boat, a bridge, a passage for those desiring the further shore. May I be the doctor and the medicine, and may I be the nurse for all sick beings in the world until everyone is healed. May the pain of every living being be completely cleared away. May the pain of every living being be completely cleared away. May the pain of every living being be completely cleared away. This is where our practice can lead. When we release the afflictive mental states and the skillful mental states come into fruition. So thank you for your attention. Let's just sit quietly for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.